Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be spending our time this morning in Ecclesiastes 5. Well, if you have an opportunity in your life to visit Israel, take it. I'm imploring you to take the opportunity. It is a wonderful time to, to see the place where a lot of what we read about in the Bible actually took place. I was uh, fortunate enough to go visit uh, Israel. Shannon was, was there as well. We were part of a choir tour uh, in 2013. We got to tour all over the, the entire nation of Israel. We also spent uh, a, a week or so in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And I, I was thinking about this this week and was reminded of one particular day where we had spent the, the day in Jerusalem touring the sites that were associated with Jesus' final hours on earth. So we went to the, um, the possible site of the upper room, we went to Gethsemane, we toured a couple of different possible locations of where um, Christ was crucified and where he was buried. So it was a really, really poignant day. We, we kind of came back from all of that, just having kind of this, this reverential awe over us about what we had seen and experienced that day. And we closed the night. We were uh, staying at a, at a place on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. We, we spent that night out in kind of a little amphitheater area. And one of our tour guides kind of wrapped the night up with a message that kind of tied together everything that we had, uh, that we had experienced that day. One of the other guys on the, on the choir had brought his guitar to Israel, so he pulled that out, and we were just playing some worship songs and sing, singing together, and that's how we concluded the night. It, it, was, it was a wonderful time. We were struck by the beauty and the glory of God that, that we had seen it, it, even more tangibly by visiting those places where he lived and died and, and was resurrected. And really all we could do at that moment was sing praise. We, we couldn't think of anything better to do in that moment. You know, for many people today, something like what I just described there is the only context in which they understand the word worship. You know, it's become in a lot of ways synonymous with music. Um, you know, but there's so much more to worship than, than just music. It's not as if we just finished up the, the worship time, now we've got some other part of the service. No, this is all part of the worship service. The English word worship comes from an, an older English word that literally means to ascribe worth to someone or something. So you, you see in the way that a person lives, what is most valuable to them, what they put worth in. You know, think about how you spend your time, how you spend your money, the things that you're passionate about. Someone asks you about a certain topic and you're excited to, to talk about that with them. Those are the sorts of things that we as humans worship. We are created to worship something. Everyone worships something. Everyone puts worth in something above all else. And for those of us who've trusted in 
Christ for our salvation, who are justified in the Father's sight and who have been have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we know who ought to occupy that top spot in our lives, that position of ultimate worth. But do we really live it out in, in, in our day-to-day lives? Do our lives reflect that? That's what we're looking at today in Ecclesiastes 5. We want to see that as Christians, we must have an attitude of humble submission before our holy God. That's going to be seen both in our approach to God and in our interactions with one another. So let's, let's look at this passage now. This is Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Briefly as we jump into this, I want to give some context of where we are in Ecclesiastes. This is a book that was written by King Solomon near the end of his life. He's kind of collecting his thoughts on life, this search for meaning and value and purpose that he conducted uh, in searching for, for purpose in, in the things of this world. And his final judgment on all of this is that everything in this world is ultimately meaningless. That's not to say that nothing has any worth at all. Everything on earth has worth to some degree. It just can't sustain that level of worth forever. We try to put our ultimate worth, our our ultimate value in something, and and it can't live up to what we expect of it in that moment. We can appreciate something for what it is, but the moment we try to make it the ultimate thing in our lives, we set ourselves up for failure. You know, we turn to good blessings and try to make them the ultimate source of our worth in our lives while ignoring the One who is the source of true meaning and worth. Those good blessings that we have are just gifts from the great giver from God Himself. He is the one who has ultimate worth, who ought to be our object of worship and affection. Solomon makes that clear in the conclusion of his book, the end of Ecclesiastes. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is the, the ultimate goal in our lives, that we would fear God and keep His commandments. 
And it's this attitude of worship that Solomon concludes with that we also see in chapter 5 today. Now this, in, in ch- the beginning of chapter 5, this is actually the first command that's given in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon spends the first four chapters of this book describing how he tried to find value in all these different things and discovering all these improper sources of worship. So now he focuses our attention on the proper source of worship, but he wants to make sure that we, his readers, are not offering improper worship to the proper source of worship. So this passage consists of three cautions in our worship. Three things we need to be careful of as we seek to worship our God. So we need to be careful how we enter into worship. We need to be careful what we say. And we need to be careful in what we do. That's what we're going to focus on today. So the first caution is to be careful how you enter. Be careful how you enter. Now to give context for this, Solomon is is living in a time where there was one particular place where the formal worship of God was, was conducted. The sacrifices given to God were all done in the temple that he had designed and helped construct. So when he's thinking of in, in verse 1a, the first half of, of, the, of verse 1, where it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, he's thinking about the temple. And you know, the first thing you do when you go into a, a house is that you enter brilliant. You know. So th- th- think about this. There's, there's a level of, there's a certain attitude that needs to characterize people when they're going into a house of worship. One particular illustration that we can see of this is one of the annual feast days for the Israelites, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This is the, the one day a year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the, the center of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant stood, which really means that that's where God's presence resided. It was in, in this holiest of places within the temple. And the priest was prepared to... The, the, the priest had to prepare himself for entering into that, into that area. There were specific things that he had to do, ritual cleansings that he did. He washed himself, put on specific kind of clothes, even offered a sacrifice on his behalf before he went into the Holy of Holies to uh, offer a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. So he had, he, he understood the significance of what he was about to do. And he made sure to follow the instructions to the letter because he didn't want to face the consequences if he entered into improper, entered into that sacrifice improperly. So this picture of diligence and precision 
is what we ought to consider when we hear Solomon say, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. We ought not enter the presence of God casually or, or lightly. Now, there are a couple of different ways that we can, that we can think about this. There's kind of a, a physical sense, but also a, a spiritual sense. And the physical sense is what we're engaged in right now, this weekly Sunday worship gathering. We've, we all entered into this building with the specific purpose of gathering to worship God and to hear from His Word together. And we, need to, we need to pay careful attention to how we enter into this worship. Charles Bridges says it this way. He said, Let it not be a careless step as into an ordinary house. Begin the holy exercises before you leave your home. See that your heart is engaged not in the trifles of the moment, but in the realizing of eternity. Not in the company of thy friend, but in communion with thy Lord. Just think back to an hour or so ago. What was on your mind when you walked into the, into the building today? Were you prepared and actively ready to engage in worship of God and, and praising Him with your brothers and sisters in Christ here? Or were there, as, as Charles Bridges says, trifles of the moment that were clouding your attention? I, I, I think it's safe to assume that most, if not all of us, came in here with, with something distracting us. You know, e- each week when we, when we start the, the worship service, I always try to start with a scripture reading so that we're taking time at the beginning of the service to focus our hearts and minds on what we've gathered to do. That's the purpose of that sort of call to worship that scripture reading is that we're we're focused on the the purpose of why we've gathered together. Even before the service starts, you know, each each morning before first service, the worship team gathers in, in our, our own sort of holy huddle to pray and to to prepare our own hearts for the worship service. And one of the things that I regularly bring up in those prayers as I pray that the, that the Lord would keep us free from any sort of distractions and that our focus would be entirely on giving the honor and glory to God above all else. That we would not try to receive any sort of glory for ourselves, but we would be working for His glory and for, for your good and facilitating the sung praise of God's people. You know, there are plenty of things that are vying for our attention trying to distract us from taking stock of the serious nature of our worship every single week. You know, it's not easy. It's work for us to fully engage in what is happening in this service every single Sunday. But if you think about it, what better activity for us to be involved in than engaging our whole selves, our hearts and our minds in the praise 
of the one who has saved us from our sins, set us free from the bondage of sin and death. We're gathering as God's children to retell the glories of the gospel together and to praise our Lord for who He is and what He's done. We, we ought to cherish this time above all else. We, we ought to let this enrich our souls and refresh us. We ought to enter each Lord's Day. We, we, we ought to enter into this gathering carefully, focused on what we have intended and purposed to do when we come here. And then when we leave, we get to marvel together at the glories of God that we have witnessed in our time of singing and, and looking into God's Word. So that's the, the physical sense. You know, we've got this weekly gathering that we're engaging in, that, that, that we need to make sure that, that we're approaching appropriately. But it's not as if this is the, 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 the sacred hour where every, where every bit of worship happens and nothing can happen outside of these walls. There's nothing sanctified about this building. What is sanctified is the act that happens in this building. We could be out in the parking lot. Uh, maybe, maybe not today. It was raining when I got in. I don't know about you guys. We, we could be out in the parking lot doing the same thing and it would be exactly the same as if we were in here. We need to recognize though that there's, there's more than just this worship service. Worship is meant to encompass our entire lives. If you're a Christian, if you think about 1 Corinthians 6.19, our body is a temple of the what? The Holy Spirit. Christ specifically promised in his, in his final address to His disciples, in John 14, He said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments and I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. He's promising the Holy Spirit to His disciples. Christ sends Him to us as a helper to remind us of God's Word in our daily lives and to spur us on to greater faithfulness and obedience to God's Word. We are in communion with God every single day whether we recognize it or not. One of my old professors and my mentor, Dr. Paul Plue, he had this wonderful saying, he said, before your feet hit the ground in the morning, you're in communion with the Holy God. From the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, you're in communion with God. And even when you're asleep, He is the one sustaining you through that time of, of rest and recovery. The glory of the Gospel message is that we have peace with God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have access to God the Father. This glorious reality ought to humble us and it ought to affect 
every area of our lives. If, if we're in communion with God at all times, then that means that we need to be actively engaged in obeying God's Word. And thinking back to uh, the, the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's summary statement, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is what we have been called to do. To stand in awe of our Father and to obey what He has called us to. That needs to impact every part of our lives. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts put it this way, The great God values not the service of man if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship if there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein. It is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. We must take seriously the way that we approach every single day as an act of worship to our God. So, excuse me. So we spent a lot of time here looking at just half a verse. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. But this is important because how you enter into worship, the attitude that you have when you're engaging in worship to some degree has a massive effect on everything else that you do and say. So our next two points are fueled by what we have seen here. Our attitude, our heart attitude of humble submission to God for who He is and what He's done and desire to obey Him fuels the rest of our lives. So let's look at this next caution in our worship. So we looked at we need to be careful how we enter. The next caution is to be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. I'm just going to begin by rereading the second half of verse 1. Solomon says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing... Excuse me. They do not know that they are doing evil. Verse 3 also uh, emphasizes this, that a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So the sacrifice of fools is an overflowing of words with no real meaning behind them. Solomon was the wisest man on earth, so I think we can trust what he has to say as to what's the better way to live one way or the other. So when he says that it's better to draw near to listen than to offer the endless chatter that is the sacrifice of fools, we ought to pay attention to that. And this is not the first time that Solomon has said something about our speech and particularly about a fool's speech. Uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, he's, he says, uh, the, these similar things. Proverbs 1.5, right at the beginning, he says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, let him obtain guidance. So we see there, you know, the wise person never stops learning. By contrast, the, the foolish person never stops talking. 
He doesn't have time to listen and learn because he's talking so much. There's plenty of examples of this, not just in real life, but also in the book of Proverbs. Let me just read a few of these for you. Proverbs 14.7 says, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. There's plenty of words, but there's no knowledge there. Uh, Proverbs 10.19 is another one. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. This last one I want to read is, is probably my favorite. It's Proverbs 17.28. It says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. When he's willing to shut up for once, he's actually considered wise. Maybe he's actually learned something. So this is echoed in, in Ecclesiastes 5.3 that a fool's voice comes with many words. But what does it look like for us to be careful in what we say? We, I mean, obviously we shouldn't just say whatever comes to our minds at any given time, but how, do, how are we careful in what we say? First, first way we can see is, is in our words toward God, particularly in prayer. You know, I'd, I'd venture a guess that a good, a good majority of prayers that take place uh, for in each of our lives have something to do with blessing food and uh, making requests to God. And those are not, those are not bad things. Th- those kind of become the standard categories that we have. We pray before meals and we pray when there are specific requests that we know we need to bring before God. Like I said, those are not bad things, but there's so much more to prayer. You know, why, why are we making requests to God in the first place? It's because we know He's the, the great provider. You know? so, and what, why are we coming to Him in, in prayer like this? Because, because he's, he's our Father. You know, th- thinking through, like, why do we come before our, our great God in prayer? Why, why is it so important that we have access to God? It's because of who He is. We need to remember who it is that we're talking to and have a proper reverence for Him. And prayer is not just about bringing requests to God. I mean, we, we see in Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So this is not just an opportunity for us to humbly bring our requests before God. It's, it's a, an opportunity for us to humbly remind ourselves and, and convey to God that we understand who He is, what He's done, who we are in in contrast to, to who He is, and then we recognize our need for Him and bring those requests. And I, I skipped over verse 2 in rereading through this, this part of the passage. Let me read it now. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few." 
This idea of God being in heaven and us on earth is more of a matter of perspective because there, there's no way for us to measure distance between heaven and earth. It's a perspective. You know, we're finite creatures dependent on basically everything for, for our, our sustained life. We're specifically reliant upon God to sustain our lives. We, we need to recognize in our prayer life his greatness, his knowledge, his power, all these things, uh, his glory that exceeds anything that this world has to offer. That's why we're addressing him. So we need to recognize that and bring that up in our, our prayers and take time to praise and adore him when we are relating to him. You know, Matthew 6, I, I read a little bit of it earlier. But it says, Jesus is saying, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And he also says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus gives us two examples of people who are praying improperly. Who's the focus of those hypocritical prayers? It's It's the person praying not the person that they're praying to. They're, they're engaging in that sort of prayer to gain something for themselves. That they, they think that they're so important that they can pray in the streets and people will, will acknowledge that, oh, that person's so spiritual. A person can wax eloquent in their prayer life thinking that by, by saying a whole bunch of things and elaborating further and further on something that God is actually going to hear them and be like, okay, you wore me down. No, God already knows what's, what's happening, what you're bringing before Him. And He is at work in that situation. This is your opportunity to humbly lay these requests at His feet and be willing to learn from Him. So there's another aspect of this. We, we need to be careful in the way that we speak to God. We also need to be willing to listen. He, Solomon himself says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, to talk incessantly. So we need to be willing to listen to what God has to say. And that is found, you know, right here. This is, this is how we find out what, what God has to say to us in, in light of the requests that we make to Him. God, how am I supposed to get through this? Well, look at what characterizes the life of a Believer, emulate that. Let, let God's character be your character. Live in obedience to Him. Live, live in Christ's likeness. So that's one way of being careful how, what, what we say. We also need to look at how we talk to one another. You know, there needs to be a level of respect that happens between different people. You know, the humility that ought to characterize our speech when we're talking to God 
that same sort of humility needs to carry over into our speech with one another. You know, James 1, verses 19 and 20, James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So think about that. Does your speech reflect the righteousness of God? Is, is the character of God seen in your life by the way that you talk to other people? And James has a lot to say about the tongue, about our speech. Really, the Bible has a lot to say about our speech and how we ought to, to, to talk. That would, that would be an interesting personal study for you to see just how many words the Bible spends talking about our words. Uh, but in James 3, James is talking about the danger of the tongue and its hypocrisy. He specifically says, you know, with the tongue, we are able to praise our Lord and Father in one breath and turn around in the next breath and curse man who's made in God's likeness. How does that reflect the character of God? How are we, how, how are we acting as those whose hearts have been transformed by Christ if we're willing to praise God in one moment and put someone down in a derogatory fashion in the next. We would do well to listen and to be careful in what we actually say. Lastly, we need to be careful what we do. Be careful what you do. So, you know, we, we say a lot of things, and a lot of the stuff that we say is things that we intend to do. We need, we need to be ready to live up to what we say. Our actions need to be consistent with, what we're, with our words. You know, verses 4 and 5 of this passage Solomon says that when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So not only does the fool talk on and on and on incessantly about all these different things, but those words amount to nothing. He overpromises with his words and underdelivers with his actions. I don't know where this, where this phrase comes from, but I've heard it many times and I, I love it. It says, when all is said and done, there's a lot more said than done. <laughs> we're, we're, a lot more, we're a lot quicker to commit to something with our words than we are to commit to it with our actions. But that, there's an inconsistency there. We need, we need to be, if, if we say that we're going to do something, we need to commit that we're going to do it or we are showing ourselves to be fools. How often do we promise things in prayers to God or how often do we commit to something with a friend and then end up turning our backs on the commitment that we made? We, we, we're all susceptible to it. We're, we're all fallen hum, humans. 
we're going to, to make these mistakes, but we need to, that, that just shows that we need to be careful in the things that we say and the things that we do. As followers of Christ, we need to recognize not only the seriousness of doing what we say we're going to do, but also the fact that it's not us that is, is able to accomplish what we say we're going to do. That was kind of a confusing way to say that. We recognize that the ability to fulfill the promises that we make comes from the strength that the Spirit provides us. The Spirit is working within us. He is the one who strengthens us to live out the commitments that we, that we promise. We see this uh, particularly in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8-10. through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are His what? Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has prepared works for us to do. And He is the one who is going to strengthen us with that. I also think of Philippians 2, where Paul says, where he commands the Philippian church to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he immediately says, For it is God at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So He's the one who is working within us to keep us faithful to the promises that we that we make. So we need to have that same level of reverence, humility, submission to God that we've already been talking about. That attitude that we, we need to have when we enter into worship of, of any kind. The, the humility that we need to have in the words that we say and be, be, be quick to understand can we commit to what we say we're going to do? And then having the, the presence of mind to say, like, I've committed to this and I want to be faithful to my word. I want to prove myself trustworthy because that is the character of the God that I serve. I want to convey that in my life. So that needs to be our attitude in the things that we do. You know, when we recognize our need of God in order to fulfill what we say we're going to do, it puts our actions into a different perspective. You know, we're, we're, we're thinking about this from the fact that like, this is an act of obedience to God, not just an act of, of commitment to, to my friend. You know, this is a matter of infinite importance, like Isaac Watts said. So you know, maybe we need to reassess just how many things we commit to. Be willing to, to say no to certain things. Or maybe it just gives us the, that extra motivation to actually do the things that we say we're going to do. You know, you think, plenty of things that, that we commit to and like, ah, I don't really want to do that. I know I said I was going to go to that part, but it's been a long week. I'm tired. I just want to sit at home and watch Top Chef. But, but I committed to, to go to this, this thing. I promised that I would do whatever, whatever this is. So I want to fulfill my promise. I want to prove myself trustworthy. 
I want to follow through with what I said and be faithful in my promises just like my God is faithful in every promise that He makes. Think about this. Think about just, just how bold we are in the things that we say compared to the things that we do. One of my favorite modern songwriters wrote these lines in a song that came out about 11 years ago. He says, On the final day I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to tell you that I tried to live it like a song. And he says that because we're far bolder in the songs that we sing than, we, than in the, our actions. And think about the, the songs that we sang this morning, particularly like for the cause. Christ, we proclaim the name above every name. Are we willing to go and proclaim the name of Christ everywhere we go? Is that a characteristic part of our lives every single day? This brought back a memory for me uh, back when I was living uh, with my parents just out of college. Um, and we, we were at church one Sunday, and I was standing next to my mom. Uh, I always say that I get my, my musical talent and, and passion from, from my mom. I get, I get musical passion from both my parents. But um, I get my musical talent from my mom. She loves to sing in church. Um, but I remember one specific Sunday, in the middle of a song, she stopped singing for, for a little bit. And I asked her about it later, and she said, I realized that my heart wasn't right and I wouldn't have been truthful in what I was singing if I was going to say those words. So I took that time to just pray and, and ask that, that that would be characteristic of my, of my life and of my heart. So, so instead of committing to something or proclaiming something about herself that wasn't true, she took the time to examine her heart and pray and, and submit to God even more than that. Think about these words to a hymn that we sing pretty regularly. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Not be all else to me. The, that phrase right there. Not N-A-U-G-H-T. Basically, everything else is as nothing to me so long as I have Christ. Is that how we live? Are, are, are we living out what that lyric says? You know, this is a song that's committing ourselves to that and a desire to for, for that to be the case but th think about what we're singing when we say something like that this is not just in prayers and songs like I said this is you, you want to be trustworthy and fulfilling your commitments to whomever whether it's the Lord to, to someone else family member or friend but, and, and we need to recognize that there are serious consequences attached to not fulfilling what we say that we're going to fulfill. Ecclesiastes 5.6 Let not your mouth lead you into sin. 
You know, this reminds me of, of the verse in James 4 that says, the person who knows the right thing to do but doesn't do it, for him it is sin. So if you're neglecting what you know you ought to do, like fulfilling a promise to someone, and you don't do it, then you are letting your mouth lead you into sin. He also says, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So don't try and backtrack and say, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean, I didn't say that. You, you must be dreaming. I, I don't remember saying anything like that. Second half of that verse, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's a pretty serious consequence for our actions and, and more specifically our inaction in different points. You know, we, we might be heaping judgment on ourselves by not doing what we say we're going to do. We're, we're being inactive and then when we are active in some way, it might be hindered by the Lord because we have not committed ourselves to Him. That's a serious thing. Well, verse 7 is a perfect conclusion for us today, wrapping up this whole passage where Solomon says that when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. We all have a lot of things that we'd, we'd like to say and do. But if we have an attitude of humble submission before God, if we fear Him and submit to His authority and obey His commands, it will make a profound difference on the way we live our lives. That attitude will positively affect the things that we say. We'll have words of encouragement for one another We'll, we'll have trustworthy words because we're, we're listening to what the Lord has said in His Word and we are able to take that and translate it into real life. We're faithful to, to do the things that we commit to, the things that we say that we're going to do, these promises that are acts of worship, whether it's before God or before our neighbor. These sort of commitments are acts of worship. So I pray that all of our lives would be characterized by this kind of humility and submission before God and that the glory of God would shine forth through us as we commit ourselves all the more to Him. Let's take time to pray now. Father, make us mindful of the serious nature of life, really. That because of Your work that You have accomplished in us, that we have been brought to new life through Your Son, every moment is, is an opportunity of worship. Help us bear that in mind, Father. Help us to have an attitude where we are engaged in worshiping You above all else. That we would 
listen humbly to you and we would submit to your will. That we would be faithful in obeying what you have commanded of us. And that we would be faithful in the promises that we make. Father, keep us from foolish words and inaction. Help us be careful in the things that we say and the things that we do because we are doing those things out of a heart that overflows in adoration to you and seeks to honor you so that we may proclaim your name and your gospel not just by our words, but by our lives, Father. We pray that, that our lives would be characteristic of, of worship and praise to you. Keep these things on our minds as we go from here, Father. Help us to remember what we've learned so that we may have this attitude of humble submission before you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.